Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamu ala ibadihi ladhin astafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rasuli wa khatimi al-anbiya wa ala alihi al-iskiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya. Amma ba. The author, rahimahullahu ta'ala, titles the chapter تعليمه صلى الله عليه وسلم بالقصص وأخبار الماضي. This is chapter three. Hearts and minds of the students of the people that were around him. How was that Nabi صلى الله عليه وسلم was such a profound influence? Stories play a big role. We know this, that sometimes you can have a very complicated matter and you can summarize the essence of that matter in one story. Or sometimes a story can carry not just one lesson, but so many lessons. So if you look at the Mufassirun, when they explain the stories of the Quran, rarely is it just from one angle that the story of Nuh only has one lesson, or the story of Zakariya only has one lesson. Along the way, as they go through each point, there is a new lesson there. There's a second lesson here. There's a third lesson here. There's a fourth lesson here. Ashar al-Fawaid. There are 10 lessons to be learned from the story of the Quran. So that's another fa'idah of a qissa, that if it's well thought out and carefully crafted, you can leave behind many lessons. And as the reader matures and as they reflect on it further, they will find new meanings there. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> Narrating stories and anecdotes of past nations. Often Rasulullah would teach his Sahaba by narrating to them stories and anecdotes of past nations. This had a superb impact on the minds of his audience and served as an excellent directive. It would draw their interest and attention and would settle in their hearts and, and their ears in the best possible manner as it did not contain any explicit command or prohibition. It would be merely a story about others. People would thus learn a lesson, take an admonition, and have an example to emulate. That's Allah fascinating. Allah, 
that one of the fawaid, one of the benefits of teaching through stories is that in that moment, you aren't commanding or prohibiting someone from doing something. So they feel more relaxed. They feel, they feel comfortable. If I were to tell you to do this right now, you feel overwhelmed, a little pressured. Don't do this right now, a little intimidated, stressed. But when you're sharing a pissa, you're doing the same thing, but without directing the command at the individual. That from the people of the past, there was someone who cheated friend in business, and this was the person's outcome. So the implied hukum there is, don't cheat. You cheat someone in business, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold you accountable. But it is understood through reflecting on what happened to another individual. Yes. Allah Ta'ala also adopted this method of teaching Rasulullah Allah Ta'ala says, all that we relate to you of the accounts of the messengers whereby we console your heart. Yeah. The reason behind the stories of the prophets for Rasulullah was to bring peace and comfort to the heart of Rasulullah. That sometimes this happens. Sometimes your people reject you. Those who love you, leave you. Sometimes you have victory, sometimes you have loss. You can't be comfortable with only having victory. Sometimes settle happens, you forget something. You tried your best to do something and then it slips your mind. I mean, look at this, Rasulullah forgot the number of rakat he was reading in Salah. And this is a lesson for us, that it happens. Sometimes anger happens, sometimes sadness happens. But look at Zakaria's story. Look at Ibrahim's story. Look what happened to Ibrahim and his son Ismail. Look at what happened between Sayyidina Yaqub and his son Sayyidina Yusuf. That story is so powerful. Allah shares Yusuf's story all at once. And it's one of those um, surahs, Surah Yusuf. The more you read it, it opens up to you. One thing that I was thinking about was, imagine what Ya'qub must have been thinking for those 20 odd, 30 years that his son Yusuf was gone. There were two possibilities, either his son has died, and the uncertainty of his son being alive or dead must have killed him. They say in Arabic, al-intidharu ashaddu min al-mawt. That wait, when you're uncertain of something, when you're just waiting for something, the pain of that is more difficult than death itself. You're waiting for your ride and they're late. Every minute, what is your mind thinking? A hundred different possibilities. Did they get hurt? Did they get lost? Maybe they're coming. Maybe they're going to be here any second. You keep looking over again and again. And half an hour later, all of that anticipation has exhausted you. That the anticipation, the waiting that happens, it, it destroys a person. It's very difficult on them. So that's one possibility. Or the second possibility is that his son is alive. And if we run with that possibility that his son is alive, now the question is, what kind of son is my son? What did he turn out to be? A father would think, my son, who must have spent 20 years without me or mama, that father would think, my son probably messed up in life. 
you probably missed all the opportunities, uneducated, maybe you didn't get to build a relationship with Allah, all the things. He left when he was a young kid. I imagine the peace that comes to Yaqub's heart and eyes. Yaqub says it too, that when when the um, when when the person came to give him glad tidings about Yusuf and to invite him, he asked him, he said, How did you leave my son? Because that's the first thing a father wants to know. How did you leave my son? What state was he in? So now Yusuf sees his son, I'm seeing his father, Yaqub and they're standing in front of each other. Imagine the comfort to his father's heart that not only did he live, but he became this. He became this. And then the Qissa of Yusuf says that when he's dying, not passing, but towards the end of his life, the dua that he makes is so beautiful. It's connected to the dua that his father made before he passed away. Allah tells us regarding Yaqub passing, that when he became old, the final advice he gave to his children. What's going to happen after I die? Who will you worship? So then they said, We worship your Lord, the Lord of your forefathers, your God from Ismail, and so on. And so that was the commitment that they took from their father. And now, towards the end of Yusuf Ali's life, he begins to make one dua. My teacher, Yusuf, his name was also Yusuf. And the munasabah was, he used to say as well that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me a lot of munasabah from Yusuf alayhi salam. Yusuf alayhi salam was known for his mastery in dream interpretations, and our teacher, Shaykh Yusuf Allah, was also the master in dream interpretations. There was no second to him when it came to dream interpretations. His interpretations were pinpoint accurate. Very good. I mean, I have a whole list of stories in that regard, but maybe another time. You know, before the um, tsunami happened, in the east, I think, was it of Japan or anything? Indonesia, Japan, that area there. When that tsunami happened, a student went to Sheikh Yusuf and said to him, I saw this dream. Sheikh Yusuf, he immediately sent a message to all the students in the madrasa that a very big calamity will come involving water. And I think within a week, the tsunami happened. He was very good at dream interpretation. A person would present a dream to him, and he would tell them. A person once presented a dream to him, actually later, another time. So I heard Shaykh Yusuf saying that the dua of Yusuf was, Rabbi qad ataytani min al mulk, oh Allah, you've given me dominion. Shaykh Yusuf used to say, Alhamdulillah, Allah has given me a lot of wealth. I mean, he wasn't super rich, but he had enough for his family, he lived, drove a car, had a home. And you also taught me dream interpretation. So he used to make this dua. Rabbi qad ataytani min al-mulki wa allamtani min tawweer al-hadith. Fatir al-samawati wal-arlanda waliyyi fi dunya wal-akhir. And then he said, our shaykh said, Allah gave me the first two under his hoping, he gives me the third as well. Tawaffani musliman wa liqni bussalih. To let me die as a Muslim and resurrect me with the righteous. This is a beautiful dua to make. 
توفني مسلما والحقني بالصالحين يا الله سبحانه وتعالى give us this as well وكلا نقص عليك من انباء الرسل ما نثبت به فؤادك ومن ذلك حديثه صلى الله عليه وسلم في الترقيب في الحب في الله والمؤاخاه الخالصه للخير والدين so then he narrates the narration شيخ عبد الفتاح ابو الدار رحمه الله تعالى روى مسلم عن ابي هريره رضي الله عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ان رجلا زار اخا له في قريه اخرى that a person, a Muslim, once went to visit a brother of his who lived in another city, another Muslim brother. There's a Muslim who's sick in another city, let me go visit him. So along the way, Allah to greet him. When this person passed by the angel, so the angel said, Aina turidim? Where are you going? I'm going to visit so-and-so friend of mine in that city. Is there something that you're going to, you know, is this something about, is this in relation to something that happened before? Like maybe he owes you money, you owe him money, you know how it is, right? Like is there something that's going on here, something that you're just continuing on? Something that you need? Is there some obligation involved here? The only reason why I'm going is because I love him for the sake of Allah. So the angel said, Know that I am the messenger of Allah to you. Allah says that He loves you just as you love your brother for his sake. This is a lesson taught to Allah and to the Sahaba through a qissa. And the lesson here is learn to love one another. Go out of your way. This world needs harmony. This world needs love. We need to connect with one another. Go out of our way for one another. وَمِن تَعْلِمِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ بِتَلِيقِ الْقَصَصِ وَالْوَقَائِعِ الْمَاضِيَ أَيْضًا حَدِيثُهُ فِي الْحَضِّ عَلَى الرَّحْمَةِ بِالْحَيْوَانِ وَالْحَسَانِ لَيْهِ he says, similarly, Rasulullah has many other examples of teaching through stories the lessons of compassion and warning people of being harmful to animals or humans. Haywan, that you don't even cause harm to an animal. If you're not supposed to cause harm to an animal, you guys know the riwayah of the lady who um, starved her cat? Yes? Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what did he say about her? that she will be in the fire of hell because she starved an animal. If this is the case of a cat, then what about insan? That we do dhulm on other human beings. There was a person that was once walking. And his thirst became very intense. So he descended to a well, a well that he found, and he fashariba, he drank some water from there. He climbed out of the well. In front of him there was a dog, and the dog was licking the dirt, hoping that there might be some moisture in it. 
من العطش يأكل الثراء من العطش فقال الرجل لقد بلغ هذا الكلب من العطش مثل الذي كان بلغ منه So that person looked at the dog and said, man, this dog is as thirsty as I was. A few moments ago, I was super thirsty. Now this dog is super thirsty. He then went down into the uh, well and filled up the sock that he had with water. Then put it against the mouth of the dog. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appreciated this man's action, his kindness to an animal. And Allah forgave him. We have a similar riwayah, also narrated by um, Bukhari and Muslim, of a lady who did the same act, and she was one who uh, did not have the cleanest profession. She engaged in something very inappropriate societally. بين كلب يطيف ببئر قد كاد يقتل بالعطش إذ رأته بغية من بغايا بني إسرائيل بغية someone who engaged in prostitution من بغايا بني إسرائيل so this lady who was a prostitute she saw the dog فنزعت خفها فأذقته بخمارها she took her uh, her sock off it must have been some sort of a it was a leather sock خف that's what it means that can hold its form she then tied it to her shawl and she extracted some water from the well before this dog. These stories are powerful because they teach us a lesson. In your mind, when you're driving and you see someone struggling, you know, on the road you see people. Dallas doesn't have it that much. I was in Toronto these past few days. The homeless stayed there. People, it hurt. it hurts the heart. And forget Toronto, we don't have to even think, we'll go far, go to Austin. The homeless situation there is so bad. Go to San Francisco, go to New York, go to Jersey. It's so bad, unfortunately. You know, when I was in Toronto, it was so cold. There was, they actually had an announcement that they, they, there was supposed to be some kind of really bad weather. So everyone hunkered down and stayed inside. And uh, there was a conference, so we had to go to get lectures. And the hotel was like maybe five, 15 minute drive, 10, 15 minute drive with traffic. So when we drive to and from the conference between the lectures, I would point out to the kids that you'll notice the people that are lying on the street are all lying on top of the sewerage system. It's so cold that the condensation from the sewerage is giving them heat. So before we, as we were driving, wherever I saw steam coming up, I would say to the kids, I can guarantee someone's lying there. And we'd pull up and right there, there would be a person lying. Just right there. And one thing I shared with them, and I'll share with you, I said, Berta, look, if you can't give someone something, right now you're not in a position to give this person something. The bare minimum you can do is give them dua. If you can't give them dua, then you are no longer an insan. You're no longer a human being. Because a human being at the bare minimum must feel. Doing is a second step. We should all make niya for that as well. But at least feel. And one rewire Rasulullah says that when a person no longer feels, then you're in the weakest position of Iman. What's left of you? What's left? Nothing's left. There should be a hiss, a feeling, 
as you're walking out of the masjid from Jummah, we all see people that are struggling and they need financial help. Don't be judgy. Don't talk down to them. If you can help them, alhamdulillah. If there's, you know, something that you can do, then you should do it. Remember that you, Rasulullah through these qisas and through these stories is teaching us lessons. And in these narrations that we shared, the lesson was about compassion. The next chapter, chapter 34. Sorry, one moment. Chapter 34. Tamhiduhu al latif Yes, go ahead. That sometimes um, when Rasulullah would teach something, and it was something that was a little explicit in nature, if he had to teach something that was a little hard to teach, you know, there are subject matters when it comes to intimacy or gender matters that you have to teach, and you can get uncomfortable. A person with some haya might feel uncomfortable saying certain things. So, what Rasulullah would do, tamheed, Tamheed al-Latif, he would offer a brief introduction to the issue. First say something before saying the masa. Basically giving your disclaimers. So the person doesn't feel that you're just making them feel uncomfortable. If you need to say something, let's say you're teaching a class on istinja, on how to wash yourself after you believe yourself, that's not a comfortable conversation to have. But you must teach it. Whether it's your own children, your community, if you're in that position, your family members, you have to talk about these things because in Islam, tahara is a very big deal. Purification is a big deal. Women need to know issues related to purification that are specific to them, and men need to know issues related to purification that relate to them. Unfortunately, people don't know how to be istinja properly. And you would think it's a basic thing, but it's something that requires just a little bit of attention. That after a person urinates, you don't just get up and walk off because sometimes. Urine continues to flow, even if it's in small portions, small drops. Those urine drops, when they make contact with your garment, now compromise that garment, and now you can't pray salah with that garment on. Is that right? So this process of, after using the bathroom, hanging around for just maybe a few seconds, a minute, a few minutes, applying some pressure to your body, maybe moving yourself around a little bit, maybe coughing a little bit. In fiqh, what do they call this? Huh? Not istinja. Istibra. Istibra. What do they call it? And then you wash up, which is called istinja. So before you do istinja, before you wash yourself, there's a process that we engage in. What's it called? Istibra. Talab al bara'a. Istibra. Talab al bara'a. Basically, ensuring that you've you're clean now, that you're done with what you were doing. Before we move on to washing, we have to first make sure we're done. A lesson that should be taught. So here Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would teach. Yes, go ahead. Commencing with a subtle prelude when teaching content which could prove to be embarrassing. At times Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to pave the way with a subtle prelude when he intended teaching his sahaba something which could which could have caused embarrassment had it been said openly. Imam Muslim Abu Dawood, Imam Nasa'i. And Imam Ibn Majah narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah who said, Rasulullah said, I am to you like a father is to his child when I am teaching you. That's the tamheed. The tamheed is what? Tamheed al latif. Inna ma ana lakum mithrul walidi li waladihi wa'alimukum. 
I am to you like a father. I will teach you. Like a father teaches his child. That better look, I'm going to teach you how to bathe. Right? Let me walk you inside. You're going to get old and then I won't be able to teach you. So today you're still young. I will teach you that when you use, when you wash your body, you do this first. These are areas you have to be more careful of. Make sure you clean here properly. Make sure you clean there properly. The father does this for his son. Mother does it for her daughter. So now when the child is an adult and they're no longer, uh, it's no longer appropriate for the parent to be in the bathtub with them, the child cannot take it from there. So Rasulullah <coughs> before going into, you know, the Masail of Istinja and using the bathroom, he, he, starts, he starts with the Tamheed. So this is important. Now, for example, your kids come to you or someone in the community or your, you know, some young person in the community comes to you or maybe even you're an Islamic school teacher, you're a Sunday school teacher, and you have to touch on some of these issues. So before you go into the issue that might make feel, people feel uncomfortable, drop a little disclaimer that as a teacher, I need to cover this issue. It may make you feel uncomfortable. If you need to excuse yourself, go ahead and do that. This issue may be sexual in nature. Because if we can't, we can't skip them. If we don't teach them, if we teach them without them, they can make people feel uncomfortable and not only make them feel uncomfortable, they can lose respect for you too. Now, what is this person talking about filthy things? So you have to put a little bit of introduction there. And the second thing is, if you don't teach it, then what happens? Either they guess their way through it, and this child has no idea how to clean themselves under the navel when it comes to trimming, shaving, they won't know these basic messiah, or the worst case is some dumbbell is going to teach them what to do. And then you're just at the mercy of that dummy. That hopefully that dummy taught the right thing or they taught the wrong thing. This is important muscle I'm teaching you. The same thing goes with messiah related to intimacy. A newly married couple, I was just telling them in the car on the way here, that you know, before, when I'm, if I'm conducting a nikah, before the nikah, I sit with the bride and the groom and I tell them, this particular book on intimacy, you must both read before you get married. So tomorrow when you're engaging with one another, you at least know what Islam allows and what it doesn't allow. Otherwise, you're just going to be guessing. You're going to restrict yourself or maybe do something you're not supposed to do. Why do this when we have clarity on these issues? Our deen is not a vague one. It's clear that this you can. This you can do, this you cannot do. This is nudges, this is not nudges. This is impure, this is pure. So teach these things. So similarly, when it comes to issues related to, we talk about intimacy, I already talked about purifying the body. I think an issue that needs to be covered with, with children is foul language. They want to know, what does this word mean? My kids come to me with a new word every week. It's so disturbing. I have to keep a straight face every time. Every time. And they'll say, Abba, what does this mean? Beta, this is a foul word people use, which literally translates as a female dog. This is a word you should never use in your life. Abba, why would someone make a foul word out of this? I don't know, Beta. This is what I, this is the conversation I had this week, by the way. Beta, I don't know why they, why they use this word. Um, a female dog, a male dog, an animal, someone was probably having a bad day, they saw a female dog and they decided to use a word in an aggressive manner. Another guy saw it and said, you know what, we're going to use that word aggressive again. And then from there, some other dummy said this, and then now it's a foul word. So, better just avoid using this word. You know, refer to people with respect, talk to them with adab. Every week there's a new word that comes up. About what is this? About what is this? He was reading an Islamic book about what is pornography. We're not TV, so we're going to talk about that too. In, um, uh, 
انا لكم One thing I say to my children, and you know, it's important that we let the ummah know at this point. In our deen, we don't lie. I promise this to my kids from a young age. But if you ask me anything, I will tell you the truth, I won't lie to you. And this has been a very powerful point for them. Because they see their friends in public school, their parents lie to them all day about religion. Easter is a lie, Christmas is a lie. Everything's a lie, and they see it. And they say to me, about, why are these guys lying about Santa Claus? Why are they lying about Isa Saddam's birth? It's in spring. Why, is it, why, why are they celebrating it in December? Why are they lying about this? Why are they lying about elves? Why are they lying about Rudolph and his red nose, and they're making songs about him, the sheets, and they're, everyone's singing Rudolph had a red nose? And I say, I, I won't lie to you. In our thing, we don't have this concept. There's no place in our deen that we lie to our children or we lie to adults. Is that right, guys? Yes or no? We don't lie. However, Britta, you can ask me anything you want. I may explain certain things to you in installments. You have to be patient. And I'll let you know. If you ask me about pornography, I'll tell you, Britta, this is installment number one to this explanation. Two years from now, you can come again. We'll have a second installment. And then when you get older, we'll have the third installment of that explanation. And the reason why it's being explained like this is because this is the best way for you to understand it. Otherwise, if I dump it all at once on you, your brain will just, it'll, it'll, it'll just warp. It won't make sense. So this is the tamheed al-latif. Similarly with LGBTQ issues, gotta have the conversations. They're tough. We need to talk about them. Drug issues, we gotta talk about them. I'm telling you, every Muslim that I know, every Muslim that I know, and if you're not one of these people, you're very lucky, thank Allah day and night. Every Muslim that I know has a family member, distant or close, that has a drug problem. I'm telling you, people come to me. The Sheikh's own so relative of mine is, they're in rehab, or they're, they're, they're on this drug problem, and there are heavy drugs here, heavy drugs there. We have to talk about these things as a We need to talk about them. We've talked enough about Salah, we've talked enough about Psalm and Hajj. Now it's time to talk about issues that are plaguing the Ummah. So don't shy away from them. It makes sure that when you do it, it's done in a wise manner. Sergey, go ahead. Rasulullah said, I am to you like fathers is to his child when I'm teaching you. When you go to relieve yourselves, you should neither face the Hidda nor, nor should you turn your back towards him. He ordered that three stones should be used. He prohibited the use of dung and bones. And he prohibited... So don't use dung to clean yourself because how can you clean impurity with impurity? And uh, what is that? Uh, and neither should you use uh, bones to clean yourself because it's ihtiram. You have ihtiram for the bones of an animal or a human being. Similarly, in one riwayah, we're told that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts uh, sustenance for the jinn on those bones. So the jinn feel dishonored and disrespected that a human being is using that to clean himself with it. By the way, this last explanation I give, this is in the riwayat that Rasulullah sallallahu said, your brothers from the jinn told, requested that I tell you to not use bones to clean yourself. Yes, go ahead. And he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, prohibited his person from cleaning himself with his right limb. 
You should not clean yourself with your right hand. And not only that, there is a riwayah, if I'm correct in Sahih Muslim, that prohibits us. This is an important one. I didn't know this until I read the riwayah. I remember we were studying Sahih Muslim with our teacher, Sheikh Abdul Rahim. And when we read this riwayah, it caught my, heart, caught my mind. I was like, wow, I didn't even know this. And I was like, in my, almost in my 20s. And the riwayah was, I, we always knew that you're not supposed to clean yourself with your right hand. But this Yahya said, even when it comes to touching your private area, you should not do it with your right hand. Even when it comes to touching your private area. Sometimes a person's relieving themselves and there's a need to touch the private area to ensure that the urine doesn't go in the wrong place or making sure, whatever the situation may be. So even there in that riwayah of Sahih Muslim, there's a hidayah of Nabi And what is that one? Don't even touch your private area with your right hand. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't, you know, make physical contact. There's a need to do it. No one's saying it's haram, but it's an adab. It's an adab that if you can accommodate it, you should accommodate it. If you can't, for whatever reason, there's a need for the right hand to be used, the right left hand is unavailable, you're not capable, whatever the case may be, then go ahead. There's no need to be over the top of the issue. But there is a guidance of Rasulullah that we should do our best to live by. Go ahead. What happened? Did you turn it off? Do you want to try to connect it again? There's another narration uh, uh, in that the author narrates from Bukhari and Muslim and Aisha radiallahu anha that she's Aisha radiallahu anha says that a female companion came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she asked Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam how does a lady bathe herself after she has completed her menstruation cycle that after a person completes her menstruation cycle how do you bathe so Rasulullah he, um, he gave her the instructions that when a lady goes she should take her cleaning products with her any cleaning uh, aid like a soap or something like this take that sidra was or leaves they would use. Ma'aha, um, and take water with you as well. And then wash yourself, and then as you're washing yourself, first pour water over your head. Really get that water in. You know, just really rub it in. Until it reaches the roots of the hair. And then, and then Rasulullah said she should take a cotton, right? And mumassakatan um, means it should be happy. That cotton should have fragrance on it. She should take cotton that has mumassakatan means mutayyabatan bil misk. That's where mumassaka means from misk. 
that you, musk is a type of fragrance, that she should take a cotton that has fragrance on it, and then she should clean with it. Maybe Sassim stopped there. He didn't go any further. The questioner asked, How does she clean with it? So this part of the, 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 the explanation, Nabi Sassim felt uncomfortable. So he, he said, Subhanallah, Nabi Sassim's response was, Subhanallah, just clean with it. فقالت, um, she kept asking again and again. How? Nabi Sassim said, Subhanallah, he didn't respond. So Aisha radiallahu anha says, and this riwayah doesn't have that, but another riwayah, Aisha radiallahu anha says, I pulled her aside. And I said, Sister, <laughs> this is what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is saying. He said, female to female is easier for her to say that. That's what she said. That, you know, make sure you clean thoroughly. And if there are any traces of impurity, make sure that's that area specifically is cleaned. Yes, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Next chapter. Chapter number 36. This next one is important. It's very relevant considering where we are right now um, and the conversations that are happening in the Ummah. How Rasulullah made it a point to ensure that women are educated and to advise them. There are certain uh, political situations playing out in Asia right now where it seems as if women have been prohibited from seeking knowledge. Now, first of all, you know, we have to verify these reports to ensure that the actual situation is as it is said. Okay, and I'm not taking that responsibility, you take that responsibility. But if you can verify that this is the case, then the second thing that we need to figure out is is it due to the safety of women or is it actually a ban on education? If, the, if it's due to the safety of women, then again, there, there's some credence to that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow them to solve their problems quick. And so within a few months or a few days even, women can get back to education. This is not something that gets pushed out for years. Did I say months? Even months is not appropriate. A few weeks, you solve your security issues. You know, that if, if, you're, if you don't have the space, or for men and women to study at once, then maybe you have classes for men during the morning and then classes for women during the evening. You can use the same facility. They're saying that we don't have infrastructure. We don't have proper infrastructure for women and men to be educated. Okay, then do a more AM, PM schedule. I mean, it'll suck, it'll be tough, but it's a solution. And without any solution at all, if you're saying that women are going to be banned from education and women should not have an education, secular or religious, there is, I shouldn't use the word secular. But you guys know what I mean, right? But that you're not, we're not going to allow them to gain basic education that they need in the world today that is offered to every human being. And this is wrong. First of all, not only does it contradict what our deen teaches us, not only does it contradict what our deen teaches us, but imagine how those Muslims, because we're going to read the riwayat where Rasulullah would specifically go to educate women. So the question is, I think there are two questions that need to be understood. Question number one, do you accept that women should receive an education or not? 
Unfortunately, there are some people to this, they would say, they would say no. To those people, we have a fight to pick with, a very big fight. The second people, they say that we believe women should have an education, but it has to be Sharia compliant. Now, because that is a broad statement and there's a lot of legality involved, we can accommodate discussion there. But the discussion can't result in no education for women. The discussion needs to result in what? Good systems. Find a solution. That's what the discussion needs to be. If you're saying that our religious requirements are this, this, and this, because we know that Muslims have different interpretations to fiqh and, you know, and how we look at it, then make sure that your system accommodates it. You do it however you want to, but everyone must get an education. What, how does this look like to the world when people say blanket statements, that, and this is the Western media's badmashi, this is the way they always do it. They're la'in people. They quickly say Muslims don't allow women to get education. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then from a da'wah perspective, the non-Muslims that's looking at this, what are they thinking? That Muslims are so oppressive and barbaric that they don't even allow their own women to get education. And that is not the case at all. The greatest rawis of hadith were women. And not just in Islamic knowledge, they had knowledge of culture, they had knowledge of science, they had knowledge of math. You know, they were not only, if someone can say, but they, didn't, they only had Islamic knowledge. was a poet. And after her, there are many sahabiyat and, and also tabiat that were there who were great poets. And they were great, they were bearers of culture. And they had knowledge of science. And they had, when I say science, I'm talking about medicine here. They were known for practicing medicine. Rasulullah would take these women to the battlefield to help with curing the, the, those that were injured. Where did they get this from? They woke up one day and they had the knowledge, they learned it. Someone taught it to them. And then we see Shifa bint Abdullah uh, being appointed by Umar as a muhtasiba. She would, she would watch over the affairs of the market to make sure the finances were being run right and no one was doing anything mukhalif of sharia. That contradicted Sharia. So there is no argument to be had here. I'm being very honest with you. People that say, and then they argue, oh, the reason why women shouldn't get education is because then they're going to become feminists and liberals and, and then they're going to rebel against Islam and rebel against their husbands and the structure of family is going to break down. Buddy, calm down. If you don't have the right system of education, that's exactly what might happen. I don't know. But out of this one fear, you're basically blowing the whole structure down and saying no education anymore. This is like saying that if Muslims, Muslim kids go to school, they'll become kafir because we have many cases of kids becoming kafir. Does that not happen with both genders? Tell me yes or no. So are we just going to say openly that going to school is haram for boys as well? And then look at it from the Muslim girl's perspective. Let's say, for example, she doesn't know any better. She's never had interaction with, um, she never had any um, interaction with other Muslims or doesn't know any better of the deen. And someone says to her that your religion doesn't allow, she's a Muslim girl, okay? Imagine this from her perspective. And someone is saying to her that your religion doesn't allow you to seek an education. She must feel so little and small that man, every other religion allows their women to go and study. Every other culture, my deen, how was it treating me? That I'm not allowed to get an education? 
Build out the systems you want. Make sure they're comfortable to you. Everyone has a right to studying in an environment that's comfortable to them. If someone wants a part of that, have it. You want a divider? Knock yourself out with all the dividers you want. You want a female-only class, male-only class? Go for it. But at the end of the day, don't deprive people of knowledge. This is a very, very, very big mistake. Depriving women of knowledge. And um, I don't understand if, again, these points are true, how any government would ever even want that. You would want people in your community, every member of your community to have, to be educated, to be well-learned. Look at the Ottomans. The mothers of these Khalifas were the ones that were actually running the empire. They were so well-versed in Tadbir al-Harb and Siyasa. They were so well-versed in, in Buyur. They knew how to manage economies. These were the mothers and wives of the Khalifas. And in some cases, these the Ottoman, like those particular Khalifas were like a waste. You guys understand? Like they didn't know much of themselves. They were just enjoying themselves and the luxuries of being in the leadership position. The Khilafah was being run by their by the women folk. How did they get this knowledge? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us to understand this important lesson. Women should, it's a shame that we are even talking about this. It's their right given by the deen. If Sharia has said no to something, that's another thing. But the amal of Rasulullah is so open. How many riwayats do you want? Tell me. How many narrations do you want of Rasulullah creating systems for women to learn and to study the deen? That the Sahabiyat used to attend the durus of Rasulullah. Um Salma radiallahu anha, she was having her hair combed. Rasulullah said, He said, Oh Muslims, gather together. And she she left, she got up from her hair while she was having, she got up and she rushed to the front. So the, the mashata, the lady that was combing her hair, said, Where are you going? She said, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam called the Muslims, are we not Muslims? That command equally applies to us. And then she's the one that narrates the riwayah regarding the jal. In that riwayah, that long riwayah regarding the jal, students and knowledge, you guys know it. I think it's in Mishkat as well. The first part of that narration, she actually talks about how she was getting her hair combed. That the day started off with me getting my hair combed, and then bam. And I'm next thing you know, I'm narrating this profound incident regarding the jal. So how many narrations would you like? Tell me. How many examples? Do we want of Rasulullah teaching the women and the women also learning from them? Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq. Now, this is another masalah, and I don't think it's a gender specific issue, it's a general issue that we have to ask ourselves the environment that our kids, hmm, sorry, someone in the comments said there's no sound. I think the internet's really choppy today. Hopefully we can sort it out. But yeah. So th this is another conversation that we need to have. That the environment of education that our children are going to, is it appropriate or not? Are you guys following? Is it appropriate or not? That's another question. And then what is our solution going to be? I think that's a deeper conversation for us to have for us to think about systems, for us to create, think about models. 
what influence can we have on the public school system? How can we get involved with those boards? How can we be a part of the dialogue? How can we get teachers involved that are Muslims that can teach from a Muslim perspective? You know, again, if you can't teach, you know, religion, that's okay, but at least teach from a neutral perspective without pushing agenda onto kids. I think that's the bigger question. The solution can't always be, let's open up an Islamic version of this. We can't always do that. We need to come to the table and find solutions and let the people in the world know that the ethics and values we carry as a religious group, we want you to benefit from those two. Because there are so many parents in this nation of ours that are looking for an educational environment that is welcoming and respectful to tradition, values, and religion the way we're looking for it. It's not a separate thing. I was in conversation with um, a group of Christian seminaries. And that's what they said. They said that we Muslim, you Muslims and us Christians can easily evangelize, that we can, we can easily agree on uh, curriculum reform within the schooling system. And I said, that's fair. Because I'm almost sure what the curriculum reform you guys are looking for and what we're looking for be identical. So that way now the people with us in society don't view us as outsiders, rather they view us as members of the society, members of the community, because they're shared about the same problems we have and they're looking for solutions to solve these problems that benefit us as well. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq. We'll stop here. And if Allah wills, we'll read the riwayat in this chapter in our next class. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi